Hi, everyone. Today's March 27th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Selma Karashi. In today's show, we feature a discussion with Jennifer Morgan, who is an assistant professor of molecular cell and developmental biology at the University of Texas at Austin. Jennifer studies synaptic vesicle trafficking in the lamprey giant synapse and is especially interested in the role of presynaptic actin in neurotransmission. She filled us in on the main schools of thought about vesicular neurotransmitter release and also touched upon her developing interest in actin dynamics during spinal cord regeneration. Thanks for listening. On our panel today, we have Rama Rutnam. Hi, Salma. We have Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hi, Salma. How are you doing? Good, thanks. And Charlie Wilson. Hey, y'all. Thanks for being here, everyone. So, Jennifer, we haven't really talked about vesicle trafficking yet in our series, so I was hoping you could give us a little historical overview of the two main models that people talk about today. Um, I'm talking about the kiss-and-run versus, I guess, the clathrin-coated or collapse model. I guess it has very different, different names. Sure. So, so the issue is that now, for about 35 years, there's been a great debate in the field of neuroscience about how synaptic vesicle pools are maintained. And for sure, one way that they're maintained over time is by their local recycling and nerve terminals. So everyone agrees on that point. Um, what people don't agree on necessarily is the mechanism by which these uh, vesicles are maintained, by which they're recycled. And so, you know, now we've had sort of two camps. One camp believes that class, the formation of clathrin-coated vesicles is important for recycling synaptic vesicles. On the other hand, there may be alternative clathrin-independent uh, mechanisms, in which case um, some people believe that there's a faster form of endocytosis called kiss and run. And this debate started 35 years ago when, um, when uh, uh, John Heuser and Tom Reese did some really classic experiments in the frog neuromuscular junction. The way they did their experiments was they stimulated, so they took out a nerve mus muscle preparation and they stimulated the um, nerve to cause uh, vesicle exocytosis and then at that point, whatever happened after that. And in the meantime, they bathed the neuromuscular preparation in horseradish peroxidase, which could be used as a tracer, um, for example, to move from outside of the neuron to wherever it goes. And, and so what they wanted to know is um, during and after stimulation, you know, when the vesicle fuses with the membrane, then what happens? Where does it go? And so what they did was they stimulated for, um, you know, a, a big burst of stimulation with the horseradish peroxidase on the outside, and then they would uh, fix the preparation, you know, one minute, five minutes, an hour later in order to let the nerve terminal recover for various time points. When they did that, they found first that the horseradish peroxidase ended up in these um, small vesicular structures that had a, a protonaceous-looking coat on them, so they called them coated vesicles. Um, and it, it appeared that there were also some cisternal structures um, that were larger membranes, and um, if you waited for a, a really long time, now the horseradish peroxidase would appear inside of uh, what looked like clear vesicles. And so they, you know, from their experiments, they determined that the formation of these clathrin-coated vesicles, or at the time they didn't know it was clathrin, but the coated vesicles seemed to be an important part of recapturing the membrane. They knew that it was 
um, being recaptured from the plasma membrane because that was the only way that the horseradish peroxidase could get into the cell and then mark that membrane structure. And so they, they came out with a series of elegant papers in the Journal of Physiology in 1972-73 about, you know, the, the use of uh, clathrin-coated vesicles to recycle synaptic vesicles locally. About the same time in Italy, um, Ceccarelli um, had sort of repeated these experiments under very similar but not identical conditions. And in their experiments, they never saw the presence of clathrin-coated vesicles, but instead saw at the membrane um, what appeared to be like uncoated omega-like structures with a, with a very, um, so it appeared as if this uh, synaptic vesicle was, you know, not undergoing full collapse with the plasma membrane, but maybe just opening a small fusion pore and then pinching back off without requiring, so without requiring the coated vesicles. And they said, well, you know, Heuser and Reese decided that, or sorry, Heuser and Reese had to use heavy stimulation to um, cause these vesicles clathrin-coated vesicles to appear. We used more modest stimulations, and we didn't see that. And in fact, you know, so, you know, what we believe happens is that there's a sort of um, very rapid reversible um, exocytosis to retrieve the membranes, and that you don't need full fusion to, um, to restore the, the vesicle structure. And, um, and so critics of the clathrin pathway over the years have um, said that maybe the Heuser and Reese experiments um, required heavy, unphysiological types of stimulation in order to see the clathrin-coated vesicles. Um, critics of the Ceccarelli kiss-and-run model um, said that maybe, maybe there the problem is if you see an omega structure, how do you know that that's one that's exocytosing or endocytosing? There's no way to determine um, which direction that vesicle is, you know, is it fusing or is it going back into the, into the nerve terminal? And so this sort of struck a debate in the field about just how important the clathrin pathway is, especially under physiological conditions. You know, do you even need it? Do you see it? You know, we, and, and it is true that in most cases it, it requires a lot of stimulation to see the appearance of the coated vesicles. So you know, with that, I think, you know, the more recent work has been to try to, uh, you know, if you can understand the molecular mechanisms of one pathway versus the other, then you have ways to perturb it and look at its importance. Um, and also, we have better ways now to dynamically label the membranes and, and look at their dynamics, um, I guess, because the, the final criticism of the of the Poyser and Reese clathrin pathway is that you know, forming the clathrin-coated vesicle and recycling it in, into the nerve terminal and, you know, having to go through several sorting steps, it just take, would take too long. So with, with dynamic imaging, we could start to look at the kinetics of membrane trafficking in and out of the nerve terminal that would be consistent with either fast or slow endocytosis. Charlie? So one of the, the things that, because of that prediction of speed, it seemed to me that the capacitance measurements were really great because they tell you how long that piece of membrane stayed in the plasma membrane. And um, uh, didn't they... So how did those turn out, really? I, I can't quite sort out what the capacitance measurements end up saying. 
So, so the capacitance measurements, let's see. So it depends on which nerve terminal you're looking in or which cell you're looking at. So in, in chromaffin cells, for example, um, who was it? Christine Ardley-Host group did some really nice studies in the mid to late 90s where they patched on to chromaffin cells and, um, you know, and, and, and then uh, basically uh, did capacitance measurements. And there, they were able to detect um, single fusion events, so a single fusion of, of granules with the plasma membrane, and they could see a stepwise increase in capacitance as each vesicle would um, would fuse with the membrane. So if you you know if you stimulate the chromaffin cell, then it dumps out a whole bunch of these, and the capacitance jump, jumps way up, and then the time course of the capacitance return to baseline represents. Um, endocytosis. So Christine Lardlejo's group did an important experiment where she loaded up the patch pipette with, I think, a, a, a Dynamin antibody. And at the time, Dynamin was believed only to be um, involved in clathrin-mediated endocytosis. And when she did that experiment and stimulated the cell, now there was a huge increase in the capacitance, but no return at all. And so, you know, she then believed that, you know, in this cell that um, that at least all of the endocytosis was dynamin dependent and by extension clathrin dependent. Um, now, the question of being able to do capacitance measurements in nerve terminals is limited to large nerve terminals such as the calyx of held and retinal bipolar cells, um, which you can do. Um, the only problem there is that to look at single events is, is an issue because the vesicles are much smaller and, you know, getting reagents into those terminals has proven to be a bit difficult. And and, um, and so in the retinal bipolar cells, I think the, a lot of the work is done by um, Lagnato, and they really don't believe that clathrin is important for recycling vesicles in the retinal bipolar cells because when they, you know, mess up the clathrin pathway or, you know, that essentially um, it's, it seems to not really affect the, the decay of the capacitance very much, but one could argue that the retinal bipolar cell has a different synaptic structure. So the decay time constant itself tells you something about how quick recycling exactly. is. And it is sort of um, an assumption that the clathrin mechanism is slow. You can't, you can't derive from first principles how long that thing would take. It's just that when you see something like that, you think, oh, that must take a while. That's sort of the, the argument, isn't it? That, that, was, that is and continues to be the assumption in the field. And so to answer that question, really, you would want to look at the dynamics of a single clathrin-coated pit. Now, the, the advent of GFP um, tagging has allowed some people to be able to, to look at single clathrin-coated vesicles um, and, and actually, Jim Keen was the first person to do this. And what he, what he did, all this work was done in, in fibroblasts, so non-neuronal cells. And he had a really nice uh, study where he looked at um, the, the, the spatial arrangement of the clathrin-coated pits and where they form. And he was sort of more looking at um, their spatial organization. But he did time-lapse imaging, looking at the formation of single clathrin-coated pits over time, and by extension, you could watch them disappear. And so he wasn't so much interested in this particular paper and the, and the timing of those events, but if you look very closely at the data, you can actually see a clathrin-coated vesicle or a clathrin structure 
form and disappear within a second. Um, oh, so basically so, the time required for that is not well, from those it, articles. It hasn't been really pushed. Um, and so that was an observation that, you know, that I made in, in that particular paper. But, um, you know, again, measurements, other measurements of the course of endocytosis sort of predicted that it would take 30 to 60 seconds for a clathrin-coated vesicle to form, be, in, you know, be endocytosed, go through whatever sorting mechanism it needs to go to, with or without an endosome, and then re-enter the pool. And so... You know, and and a kiss and run model then would be, um, in its truest form, should be a reversal of exocytosis on a millisecond time scale, which frankly nobody's been able to measure. But at, when we were able to finally look at membrane dynamics and measure using FM dyes, and they found that you know there were so. Um, Tell us how that experiment works. <laughs> FM dyes. Oh, okay. Well. Um, I think it's really complicated and depends on depends on which dye you use. But but the principle is that um, that FM dye is essentially a dye that when it's in a, an aqueous solution is non-fluorescent, and it has a structure that is lipophilic, so it, it likes to go into membranes, and when it does, it becomes fluorescent, and so you can use that. You know, first to you know bathe a cell in it and label the plasma membrane. But if that cell is a neuron and you stimulate the nerve terminal, then that uh, fluorescently labeled membrane gets taken up, and then you wash away the excess dye on the outside. And so now the fluorescence is what has been internalized. Um, and um, and so let's see. So one. One experiment that was done a few years ago was to look at then the release of the FM dye. And it turns out that um, in, a, in a subset of, let's say, a subset of vesicles, it appeared that the FM dye, you know, that you would predict that if all vesicles are undergoing full collapse and meet, you know, being recycled via, let's say, a slow clathrin pathway, that you should be able to release all of the dye and that, you know, and that that should follow an exponential time course. And it turned out that there were, there were some events that appeared to re- only, you know, partially release the dye, but not all of the dye. And so that was kind of the first evidence of a, a kiss and run type um, model and and so you know using this strategy, people have now been able to peel out, uh, you know, a fast and a slow form of endocytosis. And I think everyone believes that the assumption then is that the slow one is clathrin and the fast so, one is kiss and run. So that was precisely my next question. I mean, does that do those those two sets of studies, the capacitance measurements and the um, the FM dye studies? So they've 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 had this bimodal thing where they show that there's two different time scales. But does that is there anything that's been implied about mechanism with those studies? I mean, is there anything to go the next level? Um, because it seems like that's the main support, or the only real support for Kiss and Run. Is that is that true? So there's another, more recently, Dick Chin's lab developed a, a, a slightly different um, approach. And now what we have are, you know, instead of using FM dyes, we have genetically encoded um, markers of synaptic vesicles um, where, the, where the GFP molecule is 
low fluorescence at low pH when it's inside of the vesicular membrane, and then when that vesicle is exocytosed and that fluorophore sees the extracellular environment, the fluorescence goes up. So this is called uh, synaphorin. With the pH, so what, pH fluorine. Exactly. <laughs> I know we see that in our Yeah, with the pH, exactly. Yeah. So, so now, you know, we have ways to, to tag synaptic vesicles and, and look directly at their exocytosis, endocytosis. So the fluorescence, um, you know, then, you know, you see the appearance of the fluorescence upon exocytosis, and then the disappearance of that fluorescence means that that vesicle has been endocytosed and the vesicle has been reacidified. And so um, coupling these types of fluorescence analyses together with a, um, a, a second chemical on the outside of the cell, so that small chemical is called bromophenol blue, and it, um, I understand, um, but don't, don't know this firsthand, but I understand that bromophenol blue has about the, the same, it's about the same size as glutamate. And so the prediction is that if all endocytosis is happening by um, uh, by full collapse and the infusion that the bromophenol blue would you know get into all of the endocytosed vesicles, whereas if there's some kiss and run, there would be some bromophenol blue resistant um, membranes. And it turns out there there is some bromophenol blue resistant membranes, which suggests the presence of a, a fusion pore that doesn't undergo full collapse. Carlos. So it, um, it it doesn't seem to me that these two mechanisms are mutually exclusive. Exactly. Right. Thank you. Somebody finally said it. <laughs> but um, but there may be conditions under which one is preferred over the other. Is there any idea of how that might come about? That um, that's a great question. So so what we know is that the speed of endocytosis is regulated by calcium levels. By extension, you may imagine that, um, so, and, and the relationship is that endocytosis goes faster with higher calcium. So you may imagine that you could shift from a slow mechanism on, um, in cells that are, you know, releasing neurotransmitter, you know, more infrequently, whereas if the cell is activated more and the calcium levels are high, you may switch to, you may need to switch to a faster form. It, oh, that's ironic. That's, that would be the opposite of the Heiser-Reese argument that they were stimulating too hard, and that's why they saw plasmin. Right. No, that's true. So, um, so first to answer your question, you know, I, I think that, you know, let's see, Wolf Almers has also shown that you know, that there's basically, a, you know, that there, well, many people have shown that there's a slow and fast form and which proportion of each depends on the activity level of the cell. And so, I, I, you know, I, I personally, one, one person's opinion is that, you know, that there may be, there may and should be multiple ways to recycle vesicles. And if, you know, if synaptic transmission is of critical importance to the function of the nervous system, and it is, then you ought to have a couple of ways to make that very precise and very reliable. And that um, there's an interesting review that came out in traffic maybe last year that sort of suggests that, you know, you know what we know about kiss and run and what we know about clathrin-mediated endocytosis, you know, could they both have the potential to do some of the critical things that need to be done. One is that, you know, you need to somehow regain the identity of the synaptic vesicle. And they would both allow um, some selectivity, you know, and the, the vesicle would, would have its own identity upon internalization. So in the case of kiss and run, 
the vesicle never loses its identity. In the case of full collapse and clathrin-mediated endocytosis, it's pretty clear now that some of the clathrin adapter proteins can selectively bind to synaptic vesicle proteins. So one adapter protein picks out, you know, synaptotagmin, another one picks out synaptobrevin, and what actually gets internalized has vesicle components. So, you know, so both have the features that the identity could, could be restored. Um, and oh, so the synaptic vesicle membrane wouldn't have to keep its integrity in between. It could be, it could be fragmented, and then the classroom could gather it back up. Exactly. Oh, I didn't realize that there was even a thought that it could go fragmented like that. Uh, I was thinking of it as a giant lipid raft or something like that, I guess. The time requirement for some, that would have to go through an, an endosome. And That's pretty cool, though. So just endocytose random membrane and just build a new vesicle out of that. Well, the clathrin would be grabbing it, and the clathrin would only right. accumulate if it had got all the right pieces. So it turns out that there's evidence that there are preformed clathrin-coated pits in the membrane. So, you know, it may be that, you know, that what you're retrieving is not the last vesicle component that got um, externalized, but rather there's some sitting in the wings where the clathrin adapters are building the complexes of vesicle proteins and clathrin and that whatever the stimulus is, whether it's, you know, the right calcium level or whether it's some strain or bend on the membrane by adding more plasma membrane, that's, you know, something would trigger these preformed clathrin coats to go in. And, and that, in fact, would add speed to the clathrin process. So not only is there a pool of synaptic vesicles, but there's a pool of potential synaptic vesicles. Right. Just waiting to become and, and in I fact, mean, some of them are transporters that are transporting things the wrong way. And uh, I mean, the vesicle contains transporters that that if they were, if the vesicle membrane was part of the plasma membrane, it would be pumping transmitter out of the cell. There would be a proton pump. It would be pumping protons and into the extracellular space. But uh, so the reason of 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 these endos of of the uh, of the pits could not be just to keep the membrane constant, right? It's exactly to just retrieve the proteins that just because of the process of fusion get inserted into the membrane. It's not about the membrane. Don't Probably worry about targeting. The just get the proteins. Yeah, the, and in the process, you keep you get some, so you, you, you get some membrane, right? So yeah. the target is the, is the proteins, and I mean that—that's the way it seems to be working, right? Uh, and you need to retrieve the proteins, right? The membrane, you can—I mean, the, the the retrieval of the membrane could be somewhere else. So the lipid prison. composition of the vesicle is the same as the plasma. It, it is not. Oh, it's not. It is not. In the, the stuff that I that I read about um, lipid membranes, it's like the electrostatic charge is huge, right? I mean, the the fact of fusing a vesicle is not a trivial issue, right? It's just, it's just not grabbing your uh, proteins from the vesicle, the proteins that are attached to the membrane, and just twisting twisting them, the snares, and all of a sudden they're going to eject glutamate, right? And in the Kiesel run, I haven't seen any any models or any analysis that the energy is enough to pinch back. The ones that you have fused, you have invested so much energy into opening a little pore. I don't know if that charge, there is a charge enough, charge to 
to pinch the vesicle back, right? Do you, do you know? I mean, it's the, I know it's like was, too far. But. No, uh-huh. that's a great question. Um, and it turns out that uh, there was uh, there were some there was some data. Oh, I can't remember the lab now, but there's some data a while back that suggested that this fusion pore would not be lipidic because that would be energetically unfavorable, mm-hmm. that it would have to be protonaceous. And there was some evidence, which was a little bit controversial in the mm-hmm. field, that that, um, that it was actually um, some kind of, was it a transporter? It was some kind of a- or ATPase. I don't remember exactly so what it was, kind of but like that it was... Or that opens, uh, that, that goes between the tube membranes, and then it allows the, the membranes to open. But it, right? right, exactly. Something like that, I mm-hmm. uh-huh. So that's kind of like a far... And interestingly, edge. in neurosecretory cells where the, where the vesicles are actually large granules, you... There is clear evidence of kiss and run, meaning, uh, you know, events where you can measure capacitance, you know, transient capacitance, increase, decrease, that um, that does not, you know, is clear evidence that it's kissing the membrane and then running away without um, without fusing the granule membrane. So... Well, there is the diffusional problems. I'm sorry. I just want to back up a little bit. Kiss and run can be clathrin mediated, or, I mean, that's... Just, I mean, technically, it could be right. Right. I, I completely, I so completely how- agree with you that you know what. So several things are missing here. I think one thing that's missing is a real um, careful measurement of the kinetics of clathrin assembly in in vivo or in in a nerve terminal. Um, the limitation, of course, is that if you want to look at the assembly of clathrin around a single small synaptic vesicle. That, I mean, we're, we're talking about the, the tiniest spot of fluorescence. These things, you know, synaptic vesicles are 50 nanometers, clathrin-coated vesicles and nerve terminals are 70 nanometers. So now the signal-to-noise is really, really small, and it's difficult to make those measurements. Um, but ideally, that would be the experiment to do, just to ask just how fast a clathrin coat can form and disperse, and if it's within, you know, a second or, you know, some... A millisecond time scale, then by by definition, it could meet the requirements for kiss and run. The alternative possibility is that you would want to know some more about the molecular mechanisms of kiss and run, so that you would have some way to perturb it, and then you know ask the question of what happens to vesicle recycling. Right. So that that was my next question. Uh, we seem to know a lot about clathrin mediated endocytosis. What do we know about molecular mechanisms of kiss and run, if anything, and what are What's sort of the next wave there that we can hope for? My truthful answer is that uh, I, I don't I don't know so much. I, I'm a big clathrin girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so you know there I think there was a little bit of evidence a while back, and now I can't remember the exact experiments, but it it seemed that kiss and run could be regulated by calcium levels, but so is clathrin mediated endocytosis. So it's been very difficult to peel those apart. I also wanted to bring up that this week a prominent group at UCSF uh, just reported an absolute requirement for clathrin in the reformation of vesicles, and, and they conclude, and I quote here, we find no evidence for the existence of kiss and run at the Drosophila NMJ. But uh, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so Gray Davis's group at UCSF published this paper, and, and what they did was in the as you said, in the Drosophila neuromuscular junction, they, they used an approach, basically a flash 
photolysis inactivation of the clathrin light chain. And so they could, you know, let the organism grow up as it normally does, and then, you know, right before a stimulation, inactivate the clathrin. Um, they showed very carefully that exocytosis is not perturbed by this, and then they asked the question, what happens to membrane retrieval? And what they found is that there is none, basically. Um, or sorry, actually, that, that's not true. So what they find is that, you know, that all of the synaptic vesicles um, are missing when they go back and look in the electron micrographs of these uh, images. But the synaptic boutons are now filled with these giant bulk membrane. Nothing that looks like a synaptic yeah, nothing that looks like a synaptic vesicle. And so their conclusion was that if you inactivate clathrin, and by the way, they also saw the disappearance of many EPSPs. So, you know, what whatever was happening was not allowing neurotransmission to continue. And so what they, uh, what they concluded is that in the absence of clathrin, you can get bulk endocytosis, but those events are not sufficient to reform a synaptic vesicle. And therefore, the conclusion is that clathrin-mediated endocytosis is, is doing the job and that um, uh, basically if there's kiss and run, it cannot compensate in the absence of clathrin. And, you know, frankly, we, you know, in the squid nerve terminal, we showed, we showed this um, as well. So in, when I was in George Augustine's lab and collaborating with Eileen Lafer, who's at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, uh, we designed a variety of ways to block the clathrin pathway, um, and we, you know, via peptides, interfering peptides. So we had peptides that inhibit clathrin assembly, we had peptides that inhibit clathrin disassembly, and I injected these into the squid giant synapse and measured postsynaptically, because one thing you want to know ultimately is what, what does this do to neurotransmission? I mean, you know, with, with imaging approaches, you can see where the membrane is going, but ultimately you don't know how that's affecting. If you perturb it, you don't know how it's affecting the output of the synapse, which is really important. <laughs> so, so what we did was we inhibited clathrin on the presynaptic side. We recorded postsynaptically, and under many conditions where we blocked the clathrin pathway, we could drive neurotransmission down to zero. No more neurotransmitter was released after a while. And I should point out that... Um, to counteract the criticisms of the Heuser and Reese experiments, I stimulated the nerve terminal once every 30 seconds. So it was a slow inactivation. It was a, it was a slow inhibition, but very slowly we got rid of the vesicles, and the whole time the clathrin pathway was blocked, and we showed that neurotransmission, we could drive it down to zero. We showed that you could get rid of 60 70 80% of the synaptic vesicles, and we showed that the plasma membrane expanded um, in proportion that was equivalent to the loss of synaptic vesicle membranes. And so, and so our conclusion was that if kiss and run exists at this other synapse, which is the same conclusion of the Drosophila NMJ, that it does not compensate for clathrin. Yeah, Rama? Just, a, yeah, uh, just a, so on, on that topic, um, clathrin, clathrin mediated endocytosis is sort of ubiquitous in almost every Absolutely. System. LDL cholesterol uptake is a classic one. So, I mean, a, a parsimonious explanation would be why meant uh, sort of a plethora of mechanisms that one will do. And so, unless there's a compelling reason to have a kiss and run model in the, in the nervous system, it would be 
you would expect that a system that, that works in every other system is good enough. Is there, is there any special need that the nervous system has to have? Uh, Absolutely. Speed. Speed is the speed need. Is, speed is the need. So clathrin-mediated endocytosis um, is a, a form of recycling receptors and, um, and, and also, you know, therefore removing signaling molecules from the cell surface and, and all, almost all cells that exist. Um, but there, the trafficking of membranes is very slow, constitutive trafficking. Here, we have nerve terminals that are, you know, releasing neurotransmitter at 1, 110, maybe even faster frequencies. And so you're dumping a lot of vesicular membrane into the cell surface and, and requiring this nerve terminal to keep working. So you have to have a really speedy way to get the membranes back. Um, so, so speed would be the difference. Because the entire system is faster compared to any other vesicle release, right? I mean, diffusion is extremely fast. Like, in other parts of the body, uh, it will take, I don't know, seconds or whatever to release a vesicle. But here in, a, in the nervous system, I mean, you release in less than, what, a millisecond, right? Right. So it's ironic that neuropeptides would be released by a kiss and run because refilling neuropeptides is impossible. Mm -hmm. The the neuropeptide uh, refilling process is so slow that it sort of obviates any need for any hope of speeding things up. The small vesicles, they get refilled pretty quick, Mm -hmm. but uh, in the case of the hypothalamic neuropeptides or pituitary gland, it seems silly to be in a hurry to recycle the, the membrane when the contents are going to take a long time to reason. But maybe there the speed is is not really that important, but that a dense core vesicle has a matrix inside of it that you don't want to get rid of. It, you know, that, uh-huh. that basically the idea... The, yeah, conservation of, of, the, of the matrix inside of the dense core uh-huh. vesicle may be one reason only to let the transmitter out through a small pore because maybe it would take more energy to, to build, you know, how, how would you get... You'd lose the matrix. Right. So one thing I was thinking about, one of the attractive things about full collapse is that it empties the vesicle completely. And you can say, aha, if if all the vesicles were equally full, then every quantal event will be equal in size, which is attractive to us because we've long been taught that quantal events are approximately equal in size. But in the kiss-and-run model, we would sort of expect more variability in the amount of transmitter that got released, right? Because the, there's a very narrow window when the transmitter has to find its way out of the vesicle. And especially if it's a peptide, this diffusion is not going to be super fast. It, and it's having to diffuse out of a matrix that is a crowded spot. Then uh, we might expect that the kiss and run mechanism would give us more quantum variability. Is anybody worried about that? Yeah, people were worried about it. I, I don't remember who, but suffice it to say that it's been modeled. And, you know, of course that was a consideration is that, you know, what, what if you have this fusion pore that lets out, you know, basically lets out only part of the neurotransmitter inside, then the whole quantal, you know, the whole idea of quantal content falls apart and there's you know, there's too much data. So basically the upshot is that modeling shows that a kiss and run event could release all the contents. So they had to explain that. So, so they know how long the 
the kiss remains. It's a long. Kiss. Oh, it's so it so it's, it's interesting that you say that because kiss. now now I, I think they did it the other way. No, what? No, mm-hmm. it starts. It started out with kiss and run versus Clathrin, so fast and slow. And now you know there's evidence in a variety of cells that they're you know maybe kiss and run, kiss and stay, <laughs> and and then and now um, right and the Clathrin pathway. So, so is there so in addition to speed is there also also an issue of reliability that you know, I was thinking that, that one is more one mechanism is more reliable than the other in terms of uptake? Well right. So that I mean I think I think that is is probably you know one of the one of the big issues and reliable meaning so so kiss and run would say, well, you know, kiss and run proponents would say that this is a way to main, you know maintain the absolute identity of that vesicle, especially if the fusion pore prevented the diffusion of vesicle proteins, you know, out into the plasma membrane. Can, can I can I move a little bit? I have a question. Sure. That is not probably sure. Yeah. It's it's uh, we've been talking about the recycles. But uh, about the fusion part, I mean, and now that um, um, uh, we know that now you work Uh-oh, with I said fish. diffusion around Fidel. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> don't say, don't say <laughs> anomalous. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, I forgot what I was going to ask. Uh, oh, no, about reliability. Uh, this conversation about being fast and having two mechanisms... To that makes me think that this is a really nice, perfect machine, right? But but the probability of release of a vesicle of a of a quantum, right, is 0. 0.17 in the in the CNS, right? Something like that. Oh, different synapses are different. Yeah, I, I know, I know, but it's not, it's not high. Well, there there are really? plenty of synapses where it's reliable. The calyxophil. Yeah. <laughs> sure, but. But uh, but a, a hippocampal cell? Well, is, hippocampal yeah. cells, of course, they're the most important kind, but in the stadium, <laughs> it's been the, the, in, the reliability of inhibitory synaptic transmission has been measured at a, between 0.5 and 0.9. Mm. And there are plenty of other synapses in other places that are that are in that range of reliability, which is quite a bit more than 0.17. So I, it's true that synapses are not completely reliable, but synapses could be completely reliable. The unreliability of synapses must be a feature, I think, not a bug. <laughs> Is that like a Microsoft pitch? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. uh, okay, but w- then what is what, uh, what are the st- structural properties that make the, the synaptic release reliable or not? That, do you know anything about that? I mean, does, does anybody that make release reliable? Yes, the structural uh-huh. properties. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, presumably I mean, the snares the... are the same. Right? Sorry, the snares are the same throughout, <laughs> or they they're very similar. The snare properties, right? Yes. Right. So you are do you, are you now comparing one vesicle to another, or or uh, one synapse to another could be just like calcium. Uh, the uh, amount of calcium that flows into the cell. Yeah, so you're now you're talking about release probability. Yeah, what defines yeah. Yeah, I, I, who's no, going to be released? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- assuredly, depends on um, the 
location of the vesicle in relation to calcium entry, the source of calcium entry through the voltage-gated calcium channel. And there's pretty good evidence now that, um, that the spacing of the channel to a particular uh, vesicle is what's important. And so, right. you know, now people have, have measured, you know, the total proportion of synaptic vesicles that are capable of being released in a variety of conditions under, you know, even high-frequency stimulation. And in many cases, there are only 20% of vesicles that ever fuse and get endocytosed. I mean, we've got many, many, many more synaptic vesicles than may actually be ever used. So aren't... Um I'm just backtracking again a bit, but um, aren't the two different modes that we were talking, the, the collapse versus uh, kiss and run, aren't they also differentiated based on where they occur relative to the active zone? Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Too, sure. Relative to Bedell's last point also? Well, I don't know. I don't know what people really think about kiss and run and release probability, to be honest with you, but... You know, in, in my opinion, one problem with kiss and run, so kiss and run as a, as a reversal of exocytosis suggests that that newly endocytosed vesicle ends up at the active zone. And originally, you know, when I started working on this problem, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a bad thing. If you end up with an empty vesicle docked at the active zone, and what happens if that's the next one that's in line to be released and it's empty? And how fast would neurotransmission degrade if that's the case? Um, and, and I think an assumption of my thinking at that point was that all of the vesicles would theoretically be equal. But if they're not, and if only a small proportion of them ever go at one time, then you know, having that vesicle be retrieved at the plasma membrane and then, you know, if it took a long time to be refilled may or may not be a problem if, let's say, there's another calcium channel close to another docked vesicle. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of hard for me to envision how that empty vesicle at the active zone is going to get refilled when it's just surrounded by lots of other synaptic vesicles. That, that's very hard for me to envision, but glutamate is small, so. So I, I, thought, I thought we'd switch gears a bit here. You've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the structural and, and functional role of actin at synapses. Could you tell us a little bit about this work specifically with regard to actin's role in vesicle recycling? Oh, sure. So, so we're working on the lamprey giant reticulous spinal synapse. Um, we chose this model um, to look at the role of actin and vesicle recycling, A, because these synapses are very large and they have a lot of actin at the periphery of their active zone. So surrounding the vesicle cluster, there's a dense ring of filamentous actin. It's at the right place to be involved in synaptic vesicle recycling. And, um, and the synapses themselves are very large, so we can, we can use confocal microscopy to image single active zones. And what we've found, the upshot, is that when you disrupt presynaptic actin and stimulate the nerve terminal, we get a disruption of clathrin-mediated endocytosis at a very stereotypical um, stage of the formation of clathrin-coated pits. And specifically, the clathrin coats will um, 
will begin to form and they'll invaginate, but they don't constrict and pinch off. So that suggests a role for actin and somehow either as a direct part of the constriction or, or pinching mechanism, or it may coordinate with other molecules that do the pinching, such as dynamin. So one thing that we're doing now is trying to explore you know, what's the molecular basis for this functional interaction between actin and the, the, the pinching mechanism that actually gets the clathrin-coated pit off of the membrane and back into the cell. And probably a burst of actin is important, as it is in, from the cell membrane of other cells, to push that newly endocytosed vesicle back into the cell so it can you know, uh, re-enter the pool of vesicles to be reused again. I'm thinking about modeling this stuff. <laughs> yeah, so if you have any way to model the uh, force of constriction... Yeah, it's, a, it's would, not a trivial problem. It's, it's not a trivial it's, problem. I, mean, I, can, I can think about it, modeling it. Because the actin cytoskeleton itself is a, a macromolecular structure, mm -hmm. right? Well, I think it's a fascinating So the... If I understand you right, there's, there are two processes. There is a clathrin formation of the clathrin pit, the coated pit, and then there's a process of the indigenation and the pinching off. And the actin is involved in the pinching off? The pinching, pinching off. off. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, okay. Probably pinching off and shuttling that vesicle is back it, into the cell. Right. But I would, yeah, I would imagine that, you know, that you need some energy to get that off, right? Is that, where is it coming from? Is it? ATP. <laughs> Good guess. Carlos always so precise. The banana G version. It's GTP. 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 So dynamin, the um, canonical pinchase, is a GTPase. Okay. And its uh, GTPase activity is necessary for the for the pinching off. So you know, in in the field, what what we believe is that. Dynamin is a small molecule that gets recruited to the edge of the clathrin-coated pit. It forms a ring, and then its GTPase activity causes that ring to be smaller. Now, if there's a piece of membrane in there, it's gonna it's gonna pinch. But the actin doesn't directly interact with dynamin the way it does with myosin or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, I was wondering, is, it, yeah, is there some kind of mechanical process here that is you know, well, it and pushing it? I think out? that's what we, I mean, I think that's what we want to know. So, I mean, one thing, you know, that I didn't talk about earlier, but actin, you could envision actin as part of the constriction machinery because um, actin filaments are forming in the direction towards the membrane, usually. Right, so they would be growing towards the membrane at the same time. Dynamin is, you know, pinching the membrane, um, so they may be they may be working together. So how labile is actin? I mean, how how quickly does it polymerize? So in in the lamprey synapse, if we throw on actin disrupting reagents in ten minutes, all of the actin is gone. Now, what that means for a single filament within you know within the context of the cell, I think we cannot. We cannot say. When we see these movies like a growth con where the actin is shuttling around. Well, I mean, those are real-time movies. Oh, absolutely. It seems to be happening I mean, in fractions seconds. Of a second. Yeah, se yeah, fractions of a second. Polymerizing, depolymerizing. De it's you know, yeah, very, very fast. And so, the, the what you said about actin is growing in the direction of the membrane. What, what you are meaning is the polymerization 
is happening at the at the closest to, that to the closest, mem- closest to, the to the membrane. So there's a big pool of actin sitting near the membrane that is involved in the, in, in supplying the actin for polymerization at the at this growth point on that. I think growth. so. So in most cells, including um, including cells in the nervous system, there is a layer of actin just beneath the surface of the plasma membrane that may you know that may be. Um, so it's called cortical actin, and you could imagine a way to sort of take that and add it to a growing filament. That that may be, as you said, the the supplier. Um, I you know I don't. This is all hand waving. I don't know if anybody really knows whether that's the case or not, or whether it's um, you know in a small cell it could also come from just cytoplasmic actin. So you also study some synapse formation stuff, and I was wondering if. Uh, we know the order in which these things appear at synapses. Is that actin have to be there first? That's a great question. So, so we're we're excited about doing some of these studies in the lamprey nervous system within the context of the of of a regenerating axon. Um, and the the bottom line is we we absolutely do not know the order of events during regeneration. But um, I can tell you a little bit about some studies that have been done by the lab of Craig Garner in particular. And um, he's done some really nice work where he's identified uh, basically precursors of synapses that he can track using GFP-based um, fluorescence imaging um, over time. And it turns out that uh, synaptic precursors are found in transport vesicles. And these transport vesicles have at least two identities. So one type of vesicle seems to contain a lot of scaffolding and structural proteins, um, like cell adhesion molecules and these big giant presynaptic molecules called bassoon and piccolo. Um, and then another set of transport vesicles contains a lot of synaptic vesicle proteins, such as some of the snare proteins and, and so forth. And so what, what he can do in, the, in his system is, you know, basically track these two different types of transport packets. And it, and it seems that what happens is the transport packets are mobilized and they move down the axon. And they, you know, by whatever rhyme or reason, probably some, wave your hand, um, signaling event from the postsynaptic cell, um, suddenly this transport packet will become, it will change from being a mobile packet to a stable packet, and it stops. And then another transport packet comes, and he's, you know, quantified how many of these packets do you need to assemble an actual synapse, and it's not very many. So, so it turns out the transport packets that include the vesicle clusters have been looked at by EM, by um, Steve Smith's lab, and it turns out it's not one vesicle, but a, a actual an actual packet or a cluster of vesicles that's being transported, because these, these packets are much bigger than you would expect for a single vesicle. And so, you know, it, it's something like you need two of one and three of the other to make a synapse. And once all of those components get there, within, within the hour, that new synapse can form, uh, actually can start taking up um, uh, FM dye from the outside. So it seems that within the hour, they start exocytosing and endocytosing. So the stuff that synapses are made out of are collected together and packaged together and sent uh, like a kit. 
Like a kit. Exactly. Indexonal so, superhighway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so then, you know, the question is where does Acton come in on to, to play? And you know, I think the answer is currently really unknown. Um, you could guess that Acton, you know, I, I mean it it may be built secondarily. I mean so so the two transport packets I should have I should have been a little more clear are active zone components and vesicle components. And then the actin goes around the active zone. So what this doesn't act, what this doesn't really address is where do the periactive zone components come from and when do they get built up? Is it more gradually? Is it at the same time? And I think that's completely unknown. So now that we know that we can I uh, that we can see regenerated synapses in the lamprey spinal cord where we can see active zone, periactive zone, um, subsynaptic structure at the light level, we can start to ask some of these questions. So we have to develop the techniques um, to be able to look at the assembly of synapses over time, and, and we're going we're gonna to try to do that. Thanks so much. This has been a great discussion. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop at the University of Texas San Antonio. Thanks. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>